want tonight. I know that uh, on these nights we have a lot of other things to do, but I think given the current culture, given the, the topic at hand of, of race and the church, I think this is the best place to be tonight. So thanks for coming. Excited to reintroduce to you Dr. Walter Strickland. He came and served us just a few months ago and was very helpful in helping us understand uh, the nature of race in the church. Tonight, uh, he'll be explaining to us understanding racism trying to dig down a little deeper in terms of what are, the, what are the root issues of it, and then follow that with uh, solutions. What are some secular methods that have proved unhelpful, and then what is a biblical model? So very excited about it. And, um, and so, Dr. Strickland, would you come forward, and I'd love mm-hmm. to pray for you. Yeah, yeah. Do you need a podium? Uh, yeah, that'd be great. I can okay. grab one of, one of those guys. Okay, I'll, I'll grab it for you. Let me, uh, let me pray for you. Yeah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time and for the grace you've given to us. And Jesus, you have, uh, you have destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. You have brought races together through the power of the gospel. So bring our hearts together now as we mm-hmm. seek to honor you with sharp minds, good questions, learning, mm-hmm. not just to fill our minds, Father, but to change our lives and the way we look and behave and think about people through the lens of the gospel. So bring glory to yourself. Give this dear brother strength and wisdom to, mm-hmm. to help our minds be changed and developed. And Father, thank you that he cares about our spiritual good to come serve us in this way. So mm-hmm. bless him, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I think we're all set. You guys can hear me? Oh, I can. So, some, something that I found very effective for uh, just discussing things like something as tenuous as race in the church and the gospel, oh, thank you, are just stories. Um, so, I didn't plan on telling this story because I didn't really have a story to tell before I got here. Um, but maybe about 30 minutes ago, I got here. No one else was around, and I opened up the door that was unlocked, and there was just beeping that started happening, and then it started beeping faster, and so I said, that's the alarm. And so for, for me, um, although it's kind of funny, what goes flashing through my mind are Alton Sterling. What goes flashing through my mind is... Um, you know, the, the scene in Charleston, South Carolina, with, with um, what was his name, Walter Scott, who was running away from a police officer, was shot in the back six times. And um, I, was, I, I got in my car immediately, and I was like, I need to go to a public place where there's lots and lots and lots of people. And so I pulled out of the parking lot, I was headed to Walmart, just so when the cops came and they found me, there'd be lots of people there. And so, um, like, that's, that's really... It's kind of it's it's funny, but it's but it was really horrifying for me because I was like, well, I could be mistaken to be doing something I wasn't trying to do, and I don't know if I'm going to go home at night. So like th- those are the real thoughts that were going through my mind when the alarm began to pace faster and faster, and that's why I got in my car and just sort of kind of went away because nobody else was around. And so um, anyway, I, I'm, that's not for you guys to sit here and just shed a tear with me. But it's really just kind of the realities of the times that we live in. You know, this like that is couched within a larger narrative of, of our country, and I, it's hard for me to escape that, you know. And so, not that I was doing anything wrong, coming here to talk about Jesus and the Bible, <laughs> coming here as someone who was trying to 
uh, develop unity amongst God's people and in our country, but it could be mistaken because of you know, opening a door um, before the alarm was turned off. So, yeah, I immediately called my wife and was like, hey, this is what's going on. Pray for me. So, anyway, um, so I was a little shaken up. I played it off when, you, when you, some of you guys started showing up, but at the same time, I was a little bit on edge. But that's just kind of a, a tale of um, really what it's like to be a black man in America, uh, for lack of a better way to say it. So for those of you guys who were here last time, on May 7th, we spent a lot of time talking about the Bible, uh, a lot of time talking about Scripture and how race and how culture appears there, because I really wanted us to understand that racial reconciliation is a biblical issue, not a social issue, not a politically you know um, driven issue, but this is something that ar- this, this is something that arises in Scripture, and the reason why we spent so much time in the Bible is because if we begin to see it in the pages of Scripture, and if we read Scripture on a daily basis as we are hearing it taught, as we teach it, you know, as we lie down and we wake up talking to our children, what have you, we will see that God's heart is one that's going to climax with every tribe, tongue, and nation present before him. And that's the way it ought to be. And then here and now, it's a responsibility for those who are in Christ to be giving a picture of what's to come. And so as we read through the Scripture, and as we talked through the Scripture last time, which I'm not going to do again, it's my hope that we see uh, this issue of racial reconciliation and, and like jumping over these things that divide us as part and parcel to what it means to be a believer and not this side thing that comes around every time there's a big incident in the news, right? And so we spent lots of time doing that, and then we spent some time talking about the history of race in America and how it's given us these ruts that we sort of live in, you know, these ruts where we see the world through the lens of our, you know, culture and race and background, which, and I'll say this again, it's not that um, we are trying to demean each other for how we see the world and the ruts in which we find ourselves, but it's more about just identifying that we're in them and then trying to figure out what to do with it because we're all sort of in those sort of ruts that our history has given us, right? Okay, I was like, what did I say wrong <laughs> or very unclear? And then we talked about um, because of the history in which we uh, inherit in this country and because of who we are as people, those who don't see everything perfectly clearly, we have blind spots. And our blind spots are exacerbated by the fact that we live oftentimes in communities and then go to churches that are full of people who have similar blind spots because our blind spots oftentimes are dictated by the cultures in which we have placed ourselves in. And so what we also find is that our blind spots affect how we read the Bible as well. And so it's not just that, okay, I have these blind spots and I go to the scripture and then it tells me exactly everything about me. Well, we can actually miss things that the scripture is telling us because we're not in a, an environment where people have different blind spots. Not that one person doesn't have a blind spot, because I don't want to stand here today uh, and, you, and you guys have the assumption that I'm not blind anywhere. I just have different blind, spot, blind spots because my upbringing was different. My background is a little bit different. And so this is a call for true diversity. Having old and young, 
having those who are married and unmarried, having those who are of every different race and every different socioeconomic status. If you are new here to this country or if you were born here, these are all the people that we like to have in the community of faith because we are better striving to be more Christ-like together than we are apart. That's why we are pushing for racial reconciliation. And moreover, we're better on God's mission, proclaiming the fact that there's a God who loves us, being about the business of you know, being these little agents of, re- of, re- of reconciliation in the brokenness in this world. We're better doing that together than we can apart. And so that's why we're after this business and talking about diversity. This is why it's such a biblical issue. And so uh, with that said, I, I wanted to just do that as like a little reminder for the folks who weren't here, or for those of you who were here, and just sort of the, okay, okay, to catch folks up who were not here. I, I don't know if I said that right. Um, for some reason, I didn't sleep well last night, um, and so bear with me. So today, what we're going to talk about is, um, as Pastor Tom said, we're going to talk about understanding racism, uh, discussing how it sort of manifests itself, And then we'll talk about some common solutions that people have sort of conjured up uh, about uh, solutions for uh, racism and and towards racial reconciliation. And then we'll talk about a biblical way of pursuing racial reconciliation. And then um, Pastor Tom emailed me on Saturday, which was yesterday, I guess. And he says, hey, let's talk about hot topics too. And so we're going to talk about some hot topics like politics, Black Lives Matter, and economics, immigration, and then whatever else you guys want to talk about as well. And so uh, that's when the the fireworks are going to start, and you guys will walk out, but we'll be almost done by that point anyway. So it's okay. Understanding racism. So racism sort of shows up in two distinct ways. Uh, We'll talk about individual racism, and structural or systemic racism. So uh, the first one that we uh, sociologists tell us that the folks in this room will often understand racism as an individual reality. So individualists, people who see racism as an individual phenomena, they understand racism as something that is overt and done by one individual to another, and as a result, Racism and discrimination are basically ways of thinking, mental characterization, or attitudes, or discourse. Basically saying, you know, it's, it's the way that we think about other people. How we, if we stereotype them or not. How we begin interacting and talking about people. But all this is under the umbrella of, it's the way I think about you, or the way you think about me. So it's a very individual way of person-to-person thinking about uh, race and racism. And so the authors of Divided by Faith, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, they, are, they actually uh, tell me that white evangelicals are more likely to adopt an individualist concept of racism than African-Americans. And so uh, this is because essentially the, like the Western way of understanding the Christian faith is very individualistic. I have my personal faith in Christ. I do my personal devotions. I have my personal walk with Christ. And so we have this very personalized understanding 
of how Christ relates to us, which is actually a good thing, not a bad thing, right? So you guys can say, hmm, yeah, yeah. So, moreover, evangelicals, they do not want there to be a race problem, but the, other, the thing is that many uh, evangelicals in Emerson and Smith, they would say many white evangelicals don't have a lot of relationships with minorities who are grappling with structural racism, which is the other type of racism that we'll detail in just a moment. And so what I want to first point out is that these two ways of understanding racism, I mean, people lean naturally towards one side or the other, okay? It's not that one's worse or better or anything like that. So what we're doing is simply identifying how we usually understand the idea of racism, okay? You guys are like, I like the last one talking about the Bible better. <laughs> but I, I promise you, like all this, like, <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you why I'm doing this. Because if we better understand how we um, see racism and then the solutions that we sort of conjured up in our minds for it, then we'll better understand how we can move forward. We'll better understand the people who are around us and what have you. So this is more of like a diagnostic to say, oh, yeah, I usually see it as an individual sort of reality. Oh, I, I'm more of a structural type person. Well, the thing is, both are real. So it's not that one is, again, better or worse or what have you. It's that we're just trying to figure out which way we lean to say, okay, if you lean towards the individual's understanding, okay. But let's not do that to the neglect of understanding some of the structural realities and vice versa. Okay? So I'm not like wagging the finger in your face. I'm just, we're just trying to figure out the lay of the land here. So that's the sort of individualist way, a matter of thinking, a matter of talking, a matter of discourse and what have you. Structural racism is more of this. This is a little bit more difficult to understand. It's hard to get our, our hands around it because it's more, it's just hard to get our hands around it and our minds around it. So I'll just go ahead and read this little definition that I have here. So for structuralists, racism is much more difficult to define and diagnose because it's not expressed in concrete words, like in the discourse, or actions, like things that we do to people. While structuralists affirm that thoughts and attitudes and words are important, they contend that racism is the means by which systems and organizations and enterprises grant privileges to some and then disadvantage others. The structuralist notion of racism rests upon the idea that humans are affected by social structures in which we live. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? So, I, I want to jump into sort of a biblical and theological way of understanding this and wrapping our minds around this, because so, I think it'll better help us grapple with it. So, in the beginning, we know that God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, way in the beginning. And so, what he did is that he created people in his own image. Amen? Oh, there you go. See, Pastor Tommy, did a, did a great job. teaching the Bible here. And so, uh, and then... Because we're his image bearers, we make things that are too in our image, okay? So in the same way that God made us, we reflect him, whatever we make and that we construct, both things that are material and immaterial, sort of immaterial now, like structures and enterprise and what have you, they reflect us, but since we're fallen creatures, they reflect us for better and for worse. 
You see that? And so if the things that we uh, construct, like societies and organizations and policies and procedures where we work and things like that, if we have a certain bent or if we have certain assumptions or certain blind spots, those are going to reflect in the things that we construct. Simple as that. So that's how bias shows up in structures. So oftentimes if you have lot, you know, if you have an executive board and everyone sort of looks the same, you know, if you have a if you have a church where the pastors are all walking in with their skinny jeans, their flannel shirts, their moleskin little things and their iPads and you know all that stuff, then there's probably going to be some glaring this similar blind spots. You guys see what I'm saying? So, but what happens is that countries and large corporations and governments have been constructed by folks who look fairly similar to each other and who think very similarly. So as a result, the structures in which they create usually help perpetuate those who have made them. And they don't, I mean, and, and in the best case, oh, I'm getting excited, I'm hitting the microphone. And in the best case scenario, there's no ill will towards anybody else, but because it helps these people, it just, by contrast, doesn't help these people at all, you see? And so it's, it's not necessarily a vicious thing always, sometimes it might be, but this is how the enterprises and the businesses and the policies and the structures and the enterprise that we create can sometimes have these sort of biases, and it's basically based on the fact that we are fallen. And we're trying to live out this cultural mandate of making things, building things that God has given us, but they reflect us as we reflect God. And so, I'm going to give you a test case about this individualist and the structuralist side by side. So, someone makes a statement. The statement goes like this. Black and Latino youth tend not to do as well academically as majority group members. Well, to the individualist, this is what is going through their minds. The individual's perspective often attributes the underperformance of black and Latino youth to individual factors like being undisciplined or lazy. This is at times followed by comments like, after all, my children simply put their mind to it and they succeeded. By contrast, the structuralist perspective argues that the different the difference is nothing to do with the students' innate abilities. They insist that black and Latino schools are inferior, while white schools, because of the way that um, schools are funded, just have better teachers and what have you. So do you see in that just that quick little statement how you see, okay, the individualist thinks more about, okay, those students are just lazy or undisciplined, but the structuralist thinks, well, it's more of the way that taxes are done. And because there's more tax money here, then there's a lot more resources for better teachers. And so the better teachers come here. And you, know, you guys see what I'm saying? And so and, and this, this, this is what I'm trying to get at. Both are real. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to get us to sway towards one side or the other. Because ultimately, I think that we have to begin to engage both of them for us to see any real progress in our, in the, in our country and also in the church. So... Smith and Emerson said, okay, well, it's more likely for Caucasians to be individualist, and it's more likely for black and brown folks to be structuralist. And then they talked about that 
even more so on the individual side are like Caucasian evangelicals, and then even farther on the structuralist side are black and brown evangelicals because the idea of the community taking care of one another, we had all things in common. And so what we have, what we have happen is that when we come to the table, folks who are from different cultural backgrounds to talk about racism and racial reconciliation, we come into the room with two different things in mind, right? And so we begin to talk about these things and we get frustrated very, very quickly. Why? Well, because we're talking about two different things. And then, so the, the, the talk about what the problems are is like really frustrating. So after about a couple hours, after people get flared up and stuff like that, they're like, well, let's talk about solutions. And then the solutions come and it's even more crazy because you're talking about solutions to different problems. And then we just leave even more mad. So this is why we're taking the time to sort of walk through this. And so, again, it's not that one is better than the other, but that they both exist. And when you're talking about these issues to brothers and sisters in Christ or just your average Joe Schmo out on the street, understand that they're coming to the conversation with a disposition towards one side or the other. Is that helpful? And so and it really begins to explain why you see two talking heads on the news just blah, 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 because they're talking about two different problems. But they're so busy screaming at each other <laughs> at decibels that the microphones are having trouble picking up that they can't actually understand that there's something going on that's far deeper than them just not wanting to listen to each other. So that is understanding racism, how it shows up both in individual individuals and systems. Now, solutions. Oh, thank you. Right? Well, that was awkward. A little sleep. It's going to get worse, I'm telling you. <laughs> so, towards solutions. So, there's three sort of secular solutions I want to run through, and then I want to talk about a, a, a more biblical way to understand uh, ways to go about um, racial, reconcilia racial reconciliation. The first is the colorblindness model. The colorblindness model, these people, they believe that racial reconciliation will occur once we ignore race and forget the discrimination of the past. So let's just act like it didn't happen. And then we'll just all start from here. And we'll just get on with our lives. This is where much of evangelicalism has been in years past. Okay? So what does this look like today? Well, when someone says something like this, people just are people. I don't see color. We're all just human, aren't we? We have a black president now, or at least had one. So all this is going away. I love you just like I love my white brothers and sisters. I've heard that several times. I understand what the intent behind that is. But here's some of the weaknesses. Well, first of all, I'll start with a strength. A strength of the colorblindness model is that folks who really want to see colorblindness be the way forward, it's a genuine desire for unity and allowing just a new, like a fresh start for our country in our world. So that's a genuine desire. That's why people often say, you know what, if we can just stop here and then just start fresh, that'd be awesome. And I agree, it would be awesome. But again, the reason why we spent time talking about history is because this is what we've inherited. And we, and we begin where we begin, not because we just started from 
you know, the starting blocks at zero, but because we were born into this thing, and now, by God's grace, we need to steward what we've been given to make it better for our children when we're gone. So, although that's a strength, here are some weaknesses. The first thing, it ignores Scripture's positive uh, emphasis upon cultural diversity. There's diversity found all throughout God's creation. And the apex of His creation, humanity, is, no, um, is included in that as well. And I continually quote Romans 7, verses 9 and 10 about every tribe, tongue, and nation because that's a beautiful scene that I can't wait to be there, to be you know, in that moment. And so the colorblindness model really just, it does away, it sort of levels that out. Um, and, and I think that's a bad thing. So that the second weakness is that it disallows bearing the burdens of a black or brown brother and sister. So the colorblindness model it really doesn't allow someone to bear someone's burden who's dealing with the hardship of racism. Or even, or even things like, for example, um, I have had to give account after account about why, I mean, to Christians, about how it was that I married a godly white woman. And I've had to bear that. But if someone was an adherent of the colorblindness model, they'll say, Walter... Just, that's just, just, just uh, it's not anything. Just blow it off. Well, but no, I, I, but I'm, I'm being called to account often to defend my marriage to a person who loves Jesus by other people who love Jesus. A colorblindness model will never be able to walk with me down that path and to bear that burden with me. It'll never be able to grapple with the anxieties of the fact that, you know, um, I mean, e- even that, this little story about the, me, me, me setting off the alarm at the church, it's like, well, th- there's an extra layer of anxiety I had when it started going off, and it was me. And I was here alone. I mean, I was so glad when I was pulling out of the parking lot and somebody else pulled up. I was like, okay, I can go back. Because at least they can vouch for me saying that I wasn't the person, you know, going there stealing stuff. I guess they were still Bibles or something like that, so it wouldn't be all bad. But, you know, at least, at least there's somebody else there to, to vouch for me. But, so, you know, that fear of being stereotyped. If we, if it, if we just start, said, said, hey, let's just all be colorblind. Well, the reality is, is that there's stereotyping that happens. And the fact is this, as humans, we almost have to stereotype. So, for example, I don't think I told this story last time, but um, I was watching a basketball game. You know, I was, and I have my daughter there because I'm raising her in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And um, so, of course, we were watching Duke. And I said, I said, Kendra, that is blue, you know. And then my friend goes, no, no, because he's a Carolina fan, Duke Carolina game. He's like, no, that's blue. And she's like, Daddy, are you a liar? Like, what's, what's going on? And then, you know, at, at halftime, you know, they, my wife takes my daughter outside. She says, hey, because she, she's like, a, you know, always teaching, always teaching. She says, Kendra, the sky is blue. And she's like, <laughs> mommy said this is blue. Daddy said this is blue. Uncle Mike said this is blue. What do I do? What happens is that we get this sort of like idea, this big category of blue, right? And then we just stereotype the whole thing. This is okay when we're talking about Colors, like blue, like Duke blue versus Carolina blue. But it becomes problematic because there's so many shades of blue, right? There's so many, you know, 
uh, of this type person or that type person. Our minds are quick to categorize them. But when we categorize people, oftentimes moral assumptions come with that. Value judgments come with that. As it doesn't come in with like sort of saying, okay, well that's a desk. All desks look different, but that's a desk. Is a desk is a desk, right? And so if we're talking about the colorblindness model, one of the weaknesses is that we cannot we we won't really grapple with that. And again, it's not to say that so and I, I give you that bit of information about stereotyping only to say that we just naturally do it. It's just a matter of with people sort of entering into those assumptions and trying to figure out what's biblical and what's unbiblical. So, um, number three about the colorblindness model. The colorblindness model disallows healthy communication. So, there's this communication triangle. And so if you think of a triangle, and like think of it in layers. Kind of like a cake. Which cake actually sounds fairly good right now. So on the bottom of this communication triangle, you have like rituals and you have cliches. Just people just communicating, hey, how you doing? And then you just like walk by because you like really don't want to hear how they're doing or you don't really expect them to say anything back because it's like ritual or cliche, right? You guys, it happens to me. Someone's like, hey, Walter, what are you, how you doing? And I'm like, well, actually, and then they're like, they're gone. So there's like these things that we just kind of say to each other, sort of throw around. That's one level of communication. The next one is like sort of facts and information. We were saying, hey, you know, what happened in Charlottesville last week? Fact, 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 fact. Oh, hey, what happened in the basketball game last night? Well, this is a score, that was a score, and here we go. But then, so at this, at the cliches, we're not really personal at all, and the facts and information is just like, this is where guys usually live, you know, just like talking about stuff like that. And then you have ideas and judgment. It's not just what happened last night, but what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? What does that do to you as a person? And then the, the next level is, you know, is this, this sort of peak emotive sort of, hey, this is like the inner circle of who you are, the inner sanctum of who you are. And so what happens when a incident like, let's go back in history a little bit, when something like Eric Garner happens, the guy who's in Brooklyn, uh, the I can't breathe guy. So when something like that happens, y- many people who identify with an Eric Garner racially and culturally, they are automatically thrust into the level of feelings and emotions. Okay? It's, there's this sort of identification with them. I see myself as Eric Garner, which is why I was so like scared when the alarm was going off. I see my cousins or my dad. I mean, it just, like all these sort of things start firing, and I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the level of emotion. Folks who don't identify with him sort of culturally or racially, are usually in the area of facts and information. Well, he was bootlegging things. He was loitering. He was this. And so what happens is is that until we meet somebody on the level of, like on the highest level, so whoever's at the highest level of that triangle, we have to meet them there, and then we can begin to talk about the facts and the information. You guys see that? So, for example, if I was at home crying one day, my wife Stephanie comes home, and she goes, Walter, buck up. There's no reason to be crying, you know. <laughs> Fact. Dinner's ready. Let's eat. Get over it. But that, that doesn't work. Because she didn't really engage why I was, you know, a puddle on the floor. It's probably a bad illustration. But you guys get where I'm going. So 
you have to begin to enter into that emotive space, demonstrating that you are seeing, okay, this is what this is doing to you. I'm identifying what's going on in your soul, in your spirit, as a result of these things, and that's where you begin, that's where the bearing of burdens goes, you know, comes along. And then after you're there in the moment, crying with somebody, then I mean, it's it's, it's almost like um, you go into a house where someone has lost a loved one. You say, "Hey, but you just got a million dollars in the life insurance policy." It's a fact, right? No, you don't do that. You just sit there and you cry. And you tell stories about the person who's passed. And you just commiserate with them for a while. And then eventually you kind of begin to talk about, okay, so how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? So you guys see, what, see what's going on there? And so as, as things go on in the country, there's people who are you know, receiving the information and begin conversing with each other, but they're on completely different levels of the communication triangle. And so we have to meet each other where we are in order that we can then begin to talk about facts and information and what have you. And the colorblindness model disallows us to begin to interact in such a way that demonstrates that we're actually bearing that burden. So I know I just dumped a truckload of stuff on you guys. So I want to stop, ask for like a question or two, then we'll stand up for like five minutes and we'll sit down and we'll sort of keep going. Any, any questions? Yes. I'm going to ask this, but not that I have specific intent, but you're, you call it a, a triangle, and you can go and use different visual means to do that, but the implication with a triangle is building up is that it's either more important at the top, or it's more personal. Yeah, more personal is where I was going, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like going, going from this ritual slang, sayings and cliches to facts and information, as we're sort of going up into... Uh, was it feelings and, and, and what have you, and then just kind of going into like the highest level of rapport you can have with somebody. And so that, that's, that's, that's what the, going from the outer person into the more intimate. Uh, yeah. Okay, so here's where we are now. We've talked about individual and systemic racism, how racism shows up, and then we talked about one way of engaging how race, you know, engaging racial reconciliation in light of those two things. And so I want us to take a moment, stand up for like five minutes, and then what we'll do is talk about two more other ways to deal with them, and then we'll talk about a more biblical way to sort of engage uh, racial reconciliation, okay? All right.